Hey, good morning and welcome. My name is Brian. It's great to have you guys here today. Uh, last week, we looked at the resurrection account from all four Gospels, and we harmonized them. We sequenced them in one of the possible ways that that could be done. And I alluded to one of these stories when Jesus visits these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And we're going to look at that story in closer detail today. Uh, but what's interesting about this story and the passages we read today is we're going to see what's the thing that Jesus thinks is the most important thing to say the day he comes back from the dead. Right? Many people give significance to the words that are spoken on someone's deathbed, their final words. But these are the things that Jesus says the day he comes back from the dead. Right? Like, how does he accentuate the message that he'd already proclaimed throughout the Gospels? And that's what we're going to look at now. And it's not just a message for the disciples at that time, but this is also what Jesus wants us to hear today. And so here we go. Luke chapter 24, verse 13. That very day, the day of Jesus' resurrection, uh, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking to each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And so here's this kind of unusual moment in which, right, these two disciples have, right, left Jerusalem, they're walking towards Emmaus, and then Jesus just start. he shows up and starts walking with them. But they don't recognize Jesus. He somehow appears different, right? And that, that's unusual. Let's take a look at, uh, in, in Mark 16, Mark has only two verses that describe this account. Uh, it says, after these things, after Jesus appearing to uh, Mary Magdalene and some other women, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking in the country and they went back and told the rest but they did not believe them and so this is actually like multiple times that uh jesus has appeared to some of the disciples and the rest of the group is having a hard time coming to terms with it but what's interesting is that like you know luke says they uh their eyes were kept from recognizing him and mark says that he appeared to them in a different form. And we know that even in Jesus's earthly ministry prior to his death, burial, and resurrection, that he had at times appeared in a transfigured form, right, with Moses and Elijah to uh, three of his disciples. And so I don't know what form this was, but they thought he was just some, you know, traveler along the road. And so let's keep going. So back to Luke. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And he stood still, looking sad. And so the moment that Jesus asked them that question, right, they stop walking. Like, this is, this is a heavy thing that they're considering. This is something that they're still processing uh, with one another as they're traveling. And, and so they're like, you know, trying to think, how are they going to summarize what, what they're thinking about? Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that happened there in these days? And so he's like, how, how do you not know? 
what happened, right? This, this weekend was crazy. Like, you know, it's Passover weekend. Millions of people are in here and someone was crucified outside the city along with two thieves. And this, right, this was this big moment. This was this person who for three and a half years had been doing ministry throughout Israel. And many had come to believe in who he said he was and he's gone. And so, so it's like the whole city knew whether you believe Jesus was the Messiah or you believed he was blasphemous, right? The whole city knew. And so they're like baffled that how does this traveler who's coming from Jerusalem, how does he not yet know what happened? And so he said to them, what, what things? And this is, this is interesting about Jesus, and, and we're going to see this theme throughout this narrative, where Jesus seems to act as though he doesn't know something. And it's not that he doesn't know, right? He's more interested in, in hearing what would these individuals say when answering these questions. Like, how are they going to summarize the experience? How are they going to describe what happened in Jerusalem? Right? Jesus knows more about what happened than, than they do. But he's trying to have them expose their hearts through their words. And so they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Right. And so he's saying, like, here's this this man, this prophet of God, like they still have him in that category that like he clearly was speaking God's words. He clearly was doing mighty works empowered only by God. And those works were made known before all of the people. But then, like, it's shocking to them that their rulers had delivered him up to be crucified. And then he continues, like, while he thinks good things about this, this prophet, this Jesus of Nazareth, they're not fully committed to who Jesus said he was. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. And so they are disappointed. Right? They had at one point believed, or at least hoped, right? They were rooting for the possibility that Jesus was this one who was going to deliver Israel, a redeemer, someone who would buy them back from slavery, not unlike, you know, Moses rescuing them from Egypt. That they thought that this was the redeemer. And it seems they no longer believe that. Right? It's been three days and their hopes have been dashed. They're disappointed. And they still think he's a man of God and you know, they're talking it out with one another. But they no longer have this hope. They no longer believe that Jesus is the Redeemer. <clears throat> but they have even more information. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning like the same day that they're walking right now. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And so 
they got word of the women who went to the tomb, who saw that it was empty, saw angels who then said, right, why do you, you know, look for the living among the dead? You know, Jesus is risen. Go tell them, you know, go tell his disciples to, you know, that he's alive. And yet these two disciples still didn't believe at this point, right? But they're still baffled that these women had this experience. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, right? Peter and John went to the tomb and found it just as the woman said, but him they did not see. And so what's interesting about these two is that they'd heard the account from the women. They had heard the instruction that the angels would have told the women for the disciples to go to Galilee and that they would see Jesus there, right? And that they even heard the testimony of John and Peter validating that the tomb was in fact empty. But what's interesting is in Matthew 28, the message from the angel uh, the angel told the women, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. And so this is the message that the women brought, the first account of, of what had happened. And then multiple other uh, experiences end up occurring. But they, they are delivered the message, right? He's going to see you in Galilee. And so one might be optimistic, like, oh, maybe these two disciples are like, hey, Jesus is going to see us in Galilee. Let's get out of Jerusalem and go there. Except that's not the case. They're heading to Emmaus, which is west of Jerusalem by seven miles. And Galilee is way north. Right? They're not heading in the right direction. They no longer believe that Jesus is the Redeemer. It seems their hopes have been dashed. They've given up. And even though they're hearing stories of of what happened a possibility of what happened they have not yet believed it themselves and so jesus responds and jesus is right in saying this mind you jesus said to them "O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken was it not necessary that the christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory and so jesus makes this critique right jesus is one who knows the thoughts and intents of the human heart that all is exposed to him he knows the truth of what they believe right and he's willing to accurately say this so this isn't false judgment this is right and accurate judgment of of where they are and jesus is criticizing them he's saying it's foolish how slow you are to believe this i think it's interesting that jesus indicates that being slow to believe when there's sufficient evidence to believe he puts that in a category of foolishness right and so just because like they have a degree of incredulity of like no i don't think i believe this yet doesn't mean that they're wise in their skepticism that jesus is saying you've had plenty of evidence and you're in this moment possibly suppressing the truth right that you're possibly rejecting something because right maybe it didn't uh, maybe jesus didn't come in the way that you were expecting him to maybe he wasn't the redeemer that you wanted him to be he said but he critiques them as he should he says you're foolish you're slow to believe 
and not just believe the the mo the words of these women not just believe the you know what jesus had said would happen after he died but he actually says you're slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken he's talking about the old testament scriptures he's suggesting that the scriptures themselves have been indicating that this event was going to happen for a very long time and he says was it not necessary that the christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory and i want to point out where jesus places his desk his death in terms of significance in terms of that this was an absolute necessity that the the christ the messiah the anointed one of god had to experience this suffering and death that it was to fulfill the scriptures, that this is something that Jesus said right prior to his death would happen, and not just Jesus, but the prophets of old had, had spoken of this same thing, of this coming Messiah, this sin-bearer, this suffering servant who would, who would take on the wrong that we've done, even though he was innocent. And so Jesus is saying this was necessary, right? Jesus had also come to that conclusion, reaffirmed that conclusion, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he died, in which Jesus had right prayed to the Father. He says, if there's any other way, right, let this cup pass from me. And yet the response was that this was the only way. Jesus' death is the only means through which you and I can have access to the Father. It is only through his broken body and his shed blood that we can experience the incredible redemption that God offers us and so jesus upon his resurrection the day he came back from the dead he is pointing his disciples to the old testament scriptures that described the events of his coming and he's pointing them to the fact that like hey the christ was going to accomplish this and in fact he the christ had already told you that he was going to be raised on the third day so let's keep going and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I want to point out what Jesus thought was important. Right? Jesus, although he taught us to love God and to love our neighbor, right? He felt that the significant storyline, the thread of the whole Bible was about him. And this redemption plan that God had through which he would rescue humanity, that he would deliver us from slavery to sin and death, and to which he would forgive us of our own rebellion, our own resisting him, right? That God would make a way for us to be adopted back into his family. And that Jesus is saying here, he's like all of the scriptures, and he actually does this Bible study with them as they're on this seven mile journey to Emmaus. <laughs> where he goes through all of the scriptures and they, he, he studies them out with them. And he says, this was about the Messiah. This passage is about the Christ. And, and he knows he's talking about himself, but they haven't gathered that information yet. And so they drew near to the village to which they were going. And he acted as if he were going further. Right. And so he I want to point out like this is different than deception or lying. Right. But he's he's interested in what are they going to do? 
Like, he wants them to reveal to themselves what they believe and what they're going to do. And we've actually even seen Jesus do this when his disciples were uh, going across, I believe it was the Sea of Galilee, and this, uh, he's walking across the water and they they think it's a ghost, right? And he, and he actually was going to keep walking. He was just going to meet them on the other side. But then they, like, you know, end up encountering and engaging with him in that moment. And so he's doing something similar here. So, so at least twice now, he's with these disciples. He's feigned a type of ignorance, right? He's acting as though he was going to go further. He's pretending as though he didn't know what happened in Jerusalem that weekend. And so when they realized that he was going to keep going, they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward the evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, right? And so he he stays at where where they're gonna where they're gonna stay for the night. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And so it's in this moment that like. He's connecting this to the Last Supper, right, with the breaking of the bread, the drinking of the wine. And even though they've just had this seven-mile journey with this individual and studied the scriptures with him, it's in this moment that is akin to communion that suddenly their eyes are opened and they realize who Jesus is. And he vanishes. Because on this day, he's actually out visiting multiple people right he's got he's got a really full day and oddly enough with his resurrection body he's able to get a lot more done uh although he was willing to walk you know whether it was the whole seven miles or not he was willing to walk with them and so verse 32 they said to each other did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures and so I want to I want to point out this uh, this idea, right? That Jesus, when he taught the Bible, he revealed what it meant. He explained what it meant. That he opened the scriptures to them. He he studied throughout on the theme of the Christ, the Messiah, and they saw it connected, right? He he traced this theme throughout the scriptures, and it was opened to them. They understood it as a result. And just as the scriptures were opened, their eyes had been opened and they recognized who Jesus was when he blessed the bread and broke it and gave it to them. Right? And so, and that's actually similar to, uh, right, when he was studying the scriptures, it was all pointing to who he was. It's, and this is what I want to point out, it's, it's as we study the Bible, it's as we partake in communion that we discover who Jesus is, that we discover, right, who we are and our need for a Savior, that we discover, right, our need for God's forgiveness. We recognize our rebellion and the wrong that we've done, but more importantly, right, we recognize who Jesus is, and it's, it's found in the scriptures. It's found in the Word of God that you can encounter him, all right? And so these two disciples Right. They uh, they're talking to each other now and they're like, wait a minute, like that was Jesus. And 
that actually makes a lot of sense because remember when we were walking and he was teaching us from the Bible, like our hearts were just lit up on fire with the word of God. Like it was completely connecting to who we are, that it was awakening us to the truth. Right. And so they're kind of like looking back at that moment and realizing this is all making, making sense. And so these two disciples, even though they said, you know, it's, it's almost evening. They realize they can't keep this to themselves. And so they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Right? I imagine that the seven-mile journey to Emmaus, they were probably a little bit slower. It said that they were sad. And as Jesus was teaching them, you know, they were probably thinking and walking a little bit slower as they're processing this information. But now that it's been revealed to them, I imagine that they made the journey back with greater swiftness. Right? As they're excited, they're filled with joy about the truth of who Jesus is, and they need to bring report of their experience back to the rest. And so they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together. And those people, that group, were saying to one another that the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon now. And so we don't actually get the narrative of Jesus visiting Simon. But we know that he's visited Mary and some other women, right? We know that he's visited these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he's now visited Simon. And so Jesus is just showing up all over the place. And now they're like coming together and sharing their stories. But they've come to the conclusion, right? By the end of that day, they're like, the Lord has risen indeed. It's true. His tomb is empty, and the explanation for that empty tomb is that Jesus is alive. Then they told the two disciples that traveled to Emmaus, then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And so they're all like filling each other in on their stories, and this actually uh, reminds me of uh, my my uncle and my mom had both become followers of Jesus in the same week of their lives, but they weren't together at the time. And on the weekend that they'd both traveled back home and they're like telling their family about their experience, they're like, wait a minute, that happened to you too? Like you met Jesus this week? And, and so they had this excitement and joy as they were telling about and just relating their experience and coming to the Lord to one another. It was the same exact week. And it's the same sort of thing here where, right, on Resurrection Sunday, everyone's kind of telling their stories and their skepticism, right? There's kind of like, I'm not sure. But as more and more people are, are telling the same experience, validating the same claim that Jesus is alive, right, it's starting to make sense. And upon talking about this, who shows up but Jesus, right? And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. And said to them, peace to you. Right? He just like shows up in this, uh, I believe it's a locked room. Uh, I think one of the other uh, gospel accounts says that. And so it's this locked room. They're, they're telling these stories to one another. And then Jesus is like, pretty cool, huh? Right? Like he's all excited. And, and he just says, hey, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened. And even though they've been hearing these stories, they thought they saw... A spirit. 
And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Right? So, so one thing like the why are you troubled, it's because right, they, they were kind of surprised that someone else showed up in the room. And they thought maybe, you know, maybe this was a ghost. Uh, and then he asks this other question, this more important question. Why do doubts arise in your heart? Right? He'd already talked to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. When he, and he criticized them. He said, oh, foolish ones who are slow at heart to believe. And like even talking to the rest of this group, there would have been others that are like still unsure about who Jesus is. They're still uncertain. They're still doubting whether or not he is alive, even though now multiple friends of theirs have been testifying to their experiences. He says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Right? And so Jesus, even though he appeared in some different form to the disciples on the road, he wants to make sure to uh, his friends, uh, this group of people, he's like, he wants them to know that it is him, that it's not an imposter, that it's actually the same Jesus that they knew and were talking with just a few days ago. And so he shows them his wounds. He says, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And so he's actually proving a couple things. One, see my hands and feet, like they have been crucified. And two, also see that I'm really here. I'm a human body. Like I'm, I'm still physically present with you in this moment. And so he wants them to know this. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were, they still, yeah, that's right. While they still disbelieved, for joy, and we're marveling, right? And so they're still like, some of them are still processing, like, how can this be? I don't know if I really believe in things like a resurrection from the dead. Uh, how could this possibly be my friend Jesus, who I just saw die three days ago? And, and so they're still like disbelieving and kind of joy and probably hopeful that he's alive. Jesus then asks another question. He's like, hey, have you, you guys got anything to eat here? <laughs> right? Like, kind of hungry uh and so this is in this case actually some additional evidence right they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took and ate it before them right just further evidence he's like i'm not a ghost guys like here i am i'm eating food right but while they're all processing and thinking through their doubts it's just amusing that jesus is like hey you guys have any food i can eat with you right and so then he said to them these are my words that I spoke to you while while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so what's interesting is when he was on the road to Emmaus, right, he he began with Moses and the prophets and like was criticizing them that they, they were slow to believe the prophets, right? And so uh, what's interesting in this passage is that he goes beyond Moses and the prophets. Uh, he includes the book of Psalms. And to be honest, when I first started studying the Bible, uh, I was a little bit skeptical of like the claims that there were messianic prophecies in the book of Psalms, right? Things written about the Messiah hundreds of years before he came found in these songs, this song book, much of which is written by King David. 
and I was like, kind of like, I don't know, like your song lyrics, like, you know, could it be a bit of a stretch? But what's interesting here is that Jesus indicates he includes the Psalms as having messianic prophecies that had to be fulfilled. And, and he taught from these things in this way, that the scriptures, all of the scriptures pointed towards who he was. And so Jesus believed that the Psalms included prophecies about himself, right? Jesus, even on the cross, as he was dying, he quoted from Psalm 22, which includes a passage about having your hand, your hands and feet pierced. And so, so there's some interesting things there. And I just want to point out, like, I was a little slow to believe it. And then like reading something like this, it's like, well, you know, Jesus believed it. And so I think it's somewhat credible. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And so, so notice what Jesus is doing. The day he comes back from the dead, he's having Bible studies, right? He is showing evidence to the fact that he's actually back from the dead. And then he's not just like starting some newfangled religion. No, he's rooting it in the scriptures that are known to be the words of God, right? He's rooting it in the Old Testament. He's bringing them back and, and showing and like they're gleaning through the scriptures. And he's like, look, look at this. This is all about me. And so more important than doing like more miracles or giving them some more supernatural experiences. He's like, no, what you guys need right now is a Bible study. And this is what he thought was the most important thing to do on the day he came back from the dead. And so he opened their minds to the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And so he proves it to them from the Old Testament. And likewise, probably reminded them of his own words. That very morning, the angel had already reminded them of his words, that he had predicted that he would rise on the third day. But he's now showing that same idea to them from scripture. Now, that's not the only thing that he says. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And so Jesus is pointing out that, yes, it should be the case that the Christ would suffer and die and rise again, according to the scripture. But it also should be the case that this message of repentance, of turning from sin, of changing our minds, as our minds are opened to the scriptures, right, that we would experience this forgiveness of sins that he made available. Right? This is the theological truth that he attaches to them Right, in this moment of his resurrection, in the very first day that he comes back from the dead. The message that he wants to go forth isn't the message about, you know, uh, trust God with tomorrow. It isn't the message about, uh, right, uh, love your neighbor. Right? It, isn't, it isn't the message about all of these other parables. No, no, no. The most important thing in the mind of Jesus is that we know that we can have and experience forgiveness for all of the wrong that we've ever done, that we can be made right with God, and linked with that is the need for our repentance. That just as 
the Christ, it, it should have happened that the Christ would, sh would suffer and die and be raised. It also should happen that this message would be proclaimed. And the right response to that message, right, that we should repent and believe and receive this forgiveness that Jesus offers, right? This is what we ought to do. Right? Jesus, earlier with the two disciples on the road, he used the phrasing, uh, was it not necessary that the Christ should die and suffer these things? And it's also, I want to point out, necessary for you and I to respond with a heart of repentance. That in order to experience the forgiveness of sins that he made available through his death, burial, and resurrection, in order to experience that mercy that God wants all humanity to experience, we need to come to the point of repentance, of turning from living life our own way and, and seeking after him. That this is the message that Jesus believes is the most important, and he wants this message to be proclaimed to all the world. And I want to point out, just as Jesus had full confidence and faith that the Old Testament prophecies would be fulfilled, he also had confidence in this. One, this is in agreement with his own proclamation, right, that this is going to be declared to the whole world. Uh, but also he's suggesting that it's consistent with the Old Testament claims as well. And I want to point out that you and I have even greater confidence in his words. Because in the world in which we live, this message that Jesus proclaimed and told his disciples to bring to all the nations has come very close to fulfilling this 2,000 years after he spoke it, right? That it should be interesting to us that, that the world is having this message of hope proclaimed to them, right? That gives us further confidence that Jesus is, in fact, who he said he is. And so, what I want to point out is that Jesus believes that all humanity needs to repent in order to experience forgiveness. Forgiveness is something that God wants us to receive. But it's experienced through repenting, from t turning from sin and living a life seeking after God and his kingdom. And this message that he proclaims after his resurrection is the same thing that he deemed urgent in his earthly ministry. Let me, let me do a quick survey through the Gospel of Luke. All right, in Luke chapter 5, And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so Jesus' mission coming to the earth, the way he described it, was was this, I have come to call sinners to repentance, right? To experience God's mercy and forgiveness. Or in Luke 13, after Jesus, when he's preaching, gets news of a tragedy, right? Many people had lost their lives. And, and as the crowd is also hearing this news and processing this tragedy, what Jesus deemed important in that moment was not necessarily where or you know what where the hearts of those people were because they've passed into eternity but what was important was the people who were still alive in this moment 
And how are they going to respond to Jesus? And this is what he answered them. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Right? Do you think that this tragedy happened to them because they were somehow bad people? Right? Or that they were more bad than other people? He says, no, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That Jesus thought that this message of, of repentance was important, even in the moment of like this tragedy, this bad news coming to their ears. Right? And he thought that repentance was necessary in order to avoid perishing, in order to avoid death. In Luke 15, Jesus uh, giving a parable about God's kingdom and God's love for people. All right, He says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And so he, he told this little parable, but then he links it to this, right? And, and well, I guess I wasn't done yet. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And so with this parable, this, this person finding their lost sheep, coming home rejoicing, and then celebrating with a group of other people. Jesus then relates it to this. He says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. All right, Jesus is indicating that all of heaven rejoices and throws a party when someone repents. So that even though repentance is something that for you and I, it might seem grievous. It's like, I don't want to admit that I was wrong. Like, I don't want to look back at some of my choices with regret and just be like, man, that was a bad idea, right? I don't want to have to acknowledge these things. But Jesus is suggesting that repentance is this thing to celebrate. It's life-giving. It's, it's the means through which we experience forgiveness. It's the means through which God victoriously rescues and redeems his people, right? It's through repentance. It's through turning from living life our own way, changing our minds, right? Having our minds opened up to the scriptures, having Jesus revealed to us and coming to the conclusion that I need to live my life in pursuit of who he is and believing in what he's done. Let's see Luke 16, when Jesus is telling this parable about the rich man and Lazarus, there's this interesting moment. Both of these characters die and the rich man is in this place of torment. And the rich man is speaking to Abraham. You can go study this out on your own time. But he ends up saying, I beg you, Father, send him, send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that, that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And so this rich man, in uh, fully aware of his own torment, his he finally gets off of his own kind of selfishness and starts thinking about his brothers. And he's like, I, they need to know about this outcome. And, and he's begging the father Abraham to send Lazarus to go warn his brothers. Right. And so what's interesting is just as Jesus wants this message of repentance and 
forgiveness to be proclaimed through all the nations. Oddly enough, so does this person who is standing in their guilt right before God. He wants his brothers to, to be warned, to have opportunity to repent. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Right? They will change the way they're living. Right? They will change what they believe. And so Abraham, right, uh, all of these characters are being conveyed to us by Jesus, a story that he's choosing to tell. So it's, it's through his words that Jesus is, is speaking to a crowd, and he's saying, they have Moses and the prophets. And from studying in Luke 24 today, we know what Jesus believed about those scriptures, that they pointed towards the Messiah, the only means through which we can have hope of forgiveness. And, and he believed that Moses and the prophets were sufficient to bring us to the point of repentance and life. And, and oddly enough, the rich man is like, no, 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 if someone would be brought back to life, obviously they would repent. But he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will, will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And so Jesus, upon rising from the dead, also puts this emphasis on the scriptures. He also puts this emphasis on the Bible, where he believes, right, that if people study the scriptures and have their hearts exposed to the word of God, and, and have Jesus, the Messiah, revealed to them in the Bible, right? That's what's going to bring them to repentance. That there's no amount of uh, supernatural evidence that would cause a resistant, unrepentant heart to change, right? And, and he's like, listen, even if someone should rise from the dead, there will still be people who don't believe. And sadly, there have been people upon the evidence of Jesus being raised from the dead who still have not believed. But Jesus thinks the message of the Bible is more potent, more effective at changing human lives than even the miraculous. Let's see, in John chapter 5, uh, Jesus is talking to religious leaders. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. And so Jesus is saying, the Father sent him. And, and you don't have your word abiding in your heart. And it's evidenced by the fact that you don't believe Jesus, who God has sent. He says, you search the scriptures. And you might think like, okay, what, what way would Jesus finish the sentence? Like, is he going to be saying like, good job? He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And so Jesus makes this point. The Bible isn't the thing that gives us life. The Bible is the thing that reveals the truth, right? Reveals our sin and our need for repentance. It reveals the Savior and the story of God's redemptive story. It points to the one it points to jesus who can give us life and the way we receive that life is by believing the one that god has sent 
right, by coming to Jesus, that we might have life. And so someone might even be incredibly intelligent and know the Bible, and yet not know Jesus, because their hope isn't somehow not in the only way through which we must be saved. And that is through believing, coming to Jesus, right, receiving the gift that he gave, right, repenting, turning from living life our own way, changing our minds about what we think. And so Jesus believes that you can encounter and experience God's plan for salvation, that you can have very real, authentic transformation as a result of believing in the one that God sends. And you can see testimony of who he is throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Let's see, it looks like I've got a couple more verses from John 5. He says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And so this is interesting, is that many people, yes, do come to Jesus as a result of his words. But eventually it's going to bring about belief in the rest of the Bible. As you realize the things that Jesus quotes from, the things that Jesus looks to for answers to life's most significant questions, he looks to the scriptures. And he says, listen, how are you going to believe my words? How difficult it will be to believe who Jesus is if you don't believe the writings of Moses. Right? That the whole Bible is about Jesus, and how are you going to believe Jesus if you don't believe the Bible? Right? That that's going to be a challenge for you. And so Jesus thought and believed that if you believe the scriptures, it will point to this Messiah and he'll be evidenced by all of the fulfilled scripture, the things that God had written through the prophets before he even lived on the earth. And that you can experience the same hope, right? That if you look to the scriptures, right? We don't look to nature. We don't look to our own hearts. We don't look for supernatural experiences out there. No, the truth is revealed to us in the scripture, in the Bible. And so just by reading the truth, right, faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the word of God, right, that we can encounter and experience and have our eyes opened to see what is truth, right? We can see who Jesus is, that we can see who we are and his plan for our lives. Jesus said, right, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Right? It was necessary that this would happen to the Christ. But it's also necessary for you and I to experience what he offers through repentance. Right? Through receiving the gift that he came to offer. Right? That his death, burial, and resurrection have no ability to change us or transform us if we don't receive and repent and believe that he is, in fact, the one that God sent. And I want to point out that we see this same type of message proclaimed a month and a half later when Peter is in Jerusalem. All right, and so, so Peter ends up saying the same exact kinds of things that Jesus is saying here because Jesus thought it was so urgent. And Peter's obeying Jesus, right, more effectively this time. Acts 2, 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Right? This is what Peter is proclaiming in the streets. Like if you call out to God, 
you can experience the forgiveness of sins. Is what Jesus says, right? You can experience salvation, okay? And a little bit later on, he says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, all right? And now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, right? Upon hearing Peter lay out a whole bunch of scripture and then the life of Jesus paralleled with it, Right, that it finally it cuts them to the heart. It exposes their hearts, just like on the road to Emmaus, the disciples did not say said uh, did not our hearts burn within us while he opened to us the scriptures, right? And so they end up having their hearts exposed, and they're like, "All right, what what do I need to do?" And that's what they end up saying. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, "Brothers, what shall we do?" Like some of these individuals were the very ones who had. Uh, conspired to have Jesus murdered. And like they realized they were wrong. And so they asked the question, what shall we do? Right? What hope is there for someone who is guilty like I am? And Peter said to them, repent, be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so notice this is the same thing that Jesus told us to proclaim to all the nations, the things that they were witnesses of, right? That if we repent, we can experience the forgiveness of sins. This is the message that Jesus believed was so urgent, so important, right? That the day he's back from the dead, he's telling all of his friends to bring this message to the rest of the world. This is the way that we experience God's mercy and his grace. Paul summarizes it this way. Let's see. Oh, I'm going to uh I'm going to skip. Oh, I'm going to skip even more. You can go check those out on your own time. Paul summarizes it this way. But the righteousness based on faith. Okay, and he's contrasting this idea of the righteousness from our own works, right our own trying to keep the laws of God which are insufficient. And then he contrasts that with the righteousness based on faith, that you and I can be made right with God by believing. That's what faith is, believing God, believing in the one whom he sent, believing what he says. The righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the, the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Right? Like That's not going to be any of us that can accomplish that. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Right? That the way we experience this righteousness is with the, the word of God that they proclaim. In, in completing what Jesus had asked them to do, bringing this word of hope to the rest of the world. And what do we do with that word? Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, right? acknowledge that he actually is the Christ, the one that God sent, the Messiah, the Savior, the completion of the entire biblical narrative that had all pointed to Jesus and what he came to do, that, that he would call and invite sinners to repentance, that we would have life, okay? That if we acknowledge that with our mouth and then recognize in that acknowledgement that he is Lord, that he is God himself, someone 
worthy of our obeying, of living life differently because of what he's done, right? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, right? Jesus criticized those two disciples on the road. He says, oh, foolish ones, how can you be so slow in your heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, right? That the way that we experience salvation is, is coming to the point where we believe that God sent Jesus, that Jesus accomplished what God intended him to on the cross, and that God, in fact, raised him from the dead, right? And that might seem like this preposterous claim. And the disciples, as we've read this week and last, were slow to believe that. But there's sufficient evidence. Jesus was willing to, to reveal himself to them, showing them his hands and his feet, showing them throughout the scriptures that he is, in fact, the one who came and did all of these things. And he says, listen, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's how we can experience the mercy that Jesus offered. For with the heart one believes and is justified. Right? It, that's the righteousness that comes from faith, from believing God, that we are made right with him. That we are the righteousness of God when we are found in Christ Jesus. When we place our faith in him, we are in complete right standing before him. Right? With the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And this, this confession isn't just a matter of right confessing to our guilt, although that's included in repentance. It's confessing, it's bearing witness of, of who he actually is. Right, and that's what Jesus said to his disciples. Like, you guys are all witnesses to these things, that the Christ must suffer and die and be raised on the third day, and now you're seeing the evidence of who he is. And now you have this responsibility to bring this message to the world, right? Not only to, to believe it yourself, to come to the point of God's forgiveness and mercy for all of the wrong that you've done, right? That everything that we've ever done wrong could never have been repaid by us trying to do works of the law or of us trying to love our neighbor. There's no amount of neighbor love and compassion that could ever outweigh the wrong that we've done. The only way that we could be forgiven is through Jesus. Was it not necessary for Christ to come and suffer and die and be raised? And so I encourage you today, right, that if you have not yet come to this point, keep seeking. Seek first God's kingdom, right? Seek what the Bible says. Study the scriptures. Let them be opened to you. Right? Let God reveal himself to you through his word and experience this forgiveness and mercy that he has. Don't, don't just come to the point where you're like, okay, I think this is factually true, but then do nothing with it. You need to personally come to the point where you confess Jesus as your Lord and believe in your heart that God has in fact done these things. And you can do that today. And you don't even need me to do it. I've shown you sufficient words from the Bible you can pray before God, repent, acknowledge that you've been wrong, and that Jesus is in fact who he said he is, 
and that his death, burial, and, and resurrection, right, accomplished mercy, right, accomplished the means through which God was making his grace available to you, right? Ask God to forgive you and believe in what Jesus did to make that possible rather than believing in your own good works. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, God, that, Lord, we can have confidence that we can be certain in who you are. That, Lord, we can experience who you are because you've preserved your word for us, that even this day, thousands of years later, we can encounter you as we study out the scriptures. That we can see who you are, that you truly came, that you truly died and rose from the dead. I pray, God, that this day that people would be encouraged, that their their eyes would be opened, that the scriptures would be opened to them, that they would experience who you are, that, that you would be revealed to them through the breaking of the bread, through communion, that, Lord, they can commune with you, that they can have relationship with you because of what you've done. And I pray, God, that they would with joy go forth proclaiming this message of hope and forgiveness through repentance, through trusting in what you've done, that they would bear this light to this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We'll be in touch. Let us know how we can be praying for you. Let us know if there are any answers uh, that you need for questions that you have, right? Like something you're struggling with is trying to find a way to reconcile your life with what the Bible says. Uh, I'd love to help. So please uh, write a comment, send me an email, right? Message us on Facebook. We'd love to, to help you, right? Overcome some of those, those hurdles, those stumbling blocks that you might have is like, I'm still wrestling with this one piece. How, how do I solve this problem with the Bible? How, how do I come to terms with what the Bible says and what my life is like? And God loves you. We love you. He is an ever-present help in time of need. Have a good week.